Hey, so glad you're joining us uh, this weekend. If I've never had the chance to meet you, I'm Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Norton Camps of Grace Church, and glad you're kind of tuning in wherever you're watching this from, your living room, kitchen, uh, in the car, whatever. If you're in the car, I hope you're listening, not watching, but Christmas is about two weeks away, depending on when you're watching this, right? And so hopefully you have your Christmas shopping done. Raise your hand if you got it all done, all of it. Yeah, I'm jealous, but it's coming and lots of stuff going on here at Grace Church. Let me just tell you this real quick. You can go to our website, check this out, but uh, our Christmas Eve services are posted. And I just encourage you, if you're able to, not everybody's able to, if you're able to, feel comfortable doing this, love for you to come join us for one of our six services, either Thursday night, Friday night uh, before Christmas. It's going to be a great time celebrating Jesus together. Also, I can tell you this, we have our giving tree here on the campus. And so I've had some people ask me that are watching online, how do I get involved in that? Email us, call us. We'd love for you to be involved in our Christmas giving tree. We are in a conversation, third week in it. And uh, the conversation that we're in is looking at an ancient part of the Bible written about 700 years before the first Christmas. And so it's actually a prophecy prophesying about the first Christmas. And here's how it goes. It's in Isaiah 9. So if you have a Bible, just kind of get that, kind of pause this and get your Bible, turn it to Isaiah 9. And uh, Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7 is what is the launching pad for our conversation. Here's what it says. Isaiah 9 says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he shall be called, or he will be called, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. A lot of you, that would be a familiar passage of scripture for different reasons. Some are like, ah, oh, I saw that on a Hallmark card, right? And so you recognize that. Others of you, depending on your age or maybe your like, dislike of music, uh, maybe recognize as a song, Handel's Messiah, right? I won't sing it for you, but uh, it, it immediately started coming to your mind. You began singing that. But we've been looking at this passage of scripture and saying, this is foretelling or this is the prophecy about Jesus, and it's saying this, this child that's going to be born is going to have these names, names described character and quality and calling. And so we have simply said this, that we wanted to take each of these names one week at a time and kind of unwrap them. This week, here's what I want to look at. For he shall be called Everlasting Father. Jesus, going to be called Everlasting Father. Let's just get right out of the gate and let's address an elephant in the room. That can feel weird and that can be a little confusing. Like, depending on your knowledge, familiarity with the Bible, it almost makes you think, like, maybe Isaiah's confusing Jesus, the Son, with God, the Father, right? And you're like, how? Jesus, everlasting Father? What's going on here? It's like he's confusing his terms, his designations. And I would assure you that he's not, right? Uh, there's actually this, this uh, uh, false belief called modalism that would kind of understand. But, but Isaiah's not doing that here. Now, what we said last week is this, Jesus is God, and that when you look at God, it is one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Maybe the best way for me to describe what's going on here is to take you, you don't need to turn here, we'll throw it on the screen, to a question Jesus got asked by one of his followers. Philip was his name, and Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus' response is interesting. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Don't you believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, rather it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Here's the point. Isaiah's not confusing the first person of the Godhead, God the Father, with Jesus. What he is saying is that this child will be called Everlasting Father. Maybe a way to think about it is this, is that Jesus perfectly reveals the heart of the Father to us, and he perfectly reveals the work of the Father for us. But to further understand, so Isaiah says this child uh, will be called Everlasting Father. For us to really get the punch of what Isaiah is saying here, we got to kind of go back in Isaiah's time. And if you'll do that, just, just kind of do that with me for a few minutes here. I think it's going to pop for you. But we said this, that back in the time that this was written, it was dark. It was confusing. There was a lot of fear. The people of God had been polarized, and now there's two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom, Israel, a southern kingdom, Judah. What's interesting, and it's going to make this term pop if you'll go here with me, is what you find in Isaiah 7. Just flip a page or two over and look at this. Now bear with me on the names. When Ahaz, he's the king of southern kingdom, and this is the part that Isaiah, he is preaching to the southern kingdom. He's prophesying to the southern kingdom. Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, is the king of Judah, southern kingdom. King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remuliah. There's some names if you want to choose, right? King of Israel marched up to fight against Jerusalem, capital of Judah. But they couldn't overpower. Now the house of David, Judah, was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They're afraid. Why are they afraid? Let me show you a map. I don't do this often. Let me show you a map. Ahaz and Isaiah are here. Ahaz is the king, Isaiah is the preacher in the southern kingdom of Judah. What has happened is Aram, or think Syria, and Israel, their kings have allied together. Israel's king's name is Pekah. Say that three times fast. Pekah, that's kind of fun, right? And Aram's king's name is Rezin. And they get together and they're going to they're besiege Jerusalem. And so what happens is, all of a sudden, uh, King Ahaz and the people, they're afraid. God tells Isaiah, who's ministering in the southern kingdom, I want you to go to the king, tell him he doesn't need to be afraid. I got this. I got this. And he tells Isaiah to tell the king, King Ahaz, to ask for a sign. What's interesting is, King Ahaz looks at Isaiah and says, nah, <laughs> nah, I don't think so. And then he spiritualizes and says, I don't want to put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah's like, man, how, how, how far are you going to go testing God? And God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. And maybe you've heard this before. The sign that he gives Ahaz, verse 14, chapter 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. That's the sign. Instead, though, what Ahaz does, this is interesting to me. Those of you who like history, you're going to get this. Ahaz takes matters into his own hands because he's got a threat on his doorstep. And what Ahaz does in 2 Kings 16, now let me show you this. Really do the hard work with me here. Look what it says. Then Rezin, we've heard that name, king of Syria, Aram, right? 
and Pekah, son of Remuliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war, that sounds familiar, on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. Verse 7, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser. I like that. Write that down, <laughs> right? Tiglath-Pileser. Say that three times. King of Assyria saying, I am, look at this, your servant and your what? Say it out loud, and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of king, the king of Assyria and from the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasure of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. Let's go back to our map for a second. These two guys are coming to attack King Ahaz. God tells Isaiah, tell King Ahaz, I got it, don't worry about it. King Ahaz, instead of listening to God, he goes to the king of Assyria. Piglath, right? I love it. Pooh was his nickname. And he says, Will you help me? Will you rescue me? And then he says this, I am your son and you are my daddy. Like, like it's the old, it's the old uh, quote, who's your daddy? <laughs> in, in Ahaz's case, he says, you are. Tiglath-Pileser, you are. You're my daddy. He's saying, you're the one that I'm looking to. You're the solution to my problems. You're the one who's going to rescue me from the danger I'm in. You're the one who's going to be the satisfaction. You're the pathway to my future. You're my daddy. That's what he's saying. I'm running away from God and what God is saying, and I'm going to run to you. And if you know the story, he ran there, and God's people end up in slavery. You see, Ahaz, listen close, ran from the forever father to a fake father and ended up in slavery. It's into this setting that God says this, I'm going to give a child and he shall be called. This would have popped everlasting father, forever daddy for those who recognize him. Now, I already recognize something, and then, and then we need to move on. I want to show you a couple things. That anytime I talk about father or daddy and God being referred to that way, or even Jesus in this case being referred to that way, it elicits a lot of emotions. Because some of you had daddies that were distant, abusive, absent, whatever it might be. And it can be easy to view Jesus through the lens of your dad instead of seeing Jesus as the picture of the one-of-the-kind father, regardless of who your father was. Jesus is not a reflection of your earthly father. But Jesus is the perfection in the everlasting father. That's what he's saying. Jesus is the everlasting father. So what does that mean? Let's unwrap that. What does that mean? In Jesus, we see the heart of God. We see the work of God. And there is a story that Jesus tells that helps us to understand this. Grab your Bibles and turn there. Go to Luke 15. I want you to see this. It is a story. Some people said it's the story of all stories in the Bible. That may be true, maybe not. But it is a story that Jesus told that helps us to begin to understand this. And when Jesus is telling the story, he couldn't have had a more diverse audience. Luke 15, begin verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the tax collectors... And the sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. 
So remember, Jesus is the everlasting Father. So now Jesus is on earth. Jesus has been born, he's on earth, and he's got tax collectors and sinners gathering around to hear him. What an audience, right? Tax collectors, they were paid to work for the government that was oppressing the Jewish people. Uh, It says here, sinners. Sinners is a class of people. It would have included the sick and diseased for sure, but it would have included those people who worked in the dark shadows of society. It would have included those people who had sex to make a living. You get the point. Jesus has those people in his audience, but they weren't the only ones in his audience. Look what it says. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're there too. There's preachers and there's church people there. And the preachers and the church people are muttering, they're complaining. And what are they saying? This man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. What an audience, the moral insiders and the moral outsiders. And Jesus is telling them a story because they're complaining about him. They didn't appreciate who he was welcoming. They didn't appreciate who he was spending time with. And so Jesus tells in Luke 15 a trilogy of stories. The first one's about a lost sheep. The second one's about a lost coin. And the third one is about a son or maybe sons. Or maybe the story's actually about a father. Maybe it's actually about an everlasting father. The story, the third story, is the story of all stories. And with these two very diverse crowds surrounding Jesus, Jesus standing among the sinners, right? The tax collectors, the outcasts, the moral outsiders, and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the church people, the preachers, the moral insiders. With them listening in, Jesus tells a story. And it goes like this, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, a father. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. You got to understand, he's not asking, he's demanding. And the custom would have been this, that when the father died, it would have been customary for the older brother to receive two-thirds of the estate, the younger brother one-third when the father died. Don't miss what's going on here. The boy is saying to his still alive dad, I want my part now. What the boy is saying is simply this, I kind of wish you were dead. The boy is saying, I want your stuff, not you. It'd be like your kids coming to you and say, hey, I want my part of the will now. (laughs) Like, what? Can I get my stuff now and get on with my life? Culturally, this father would have been well in line just to slap him and disown him. That's what their culture would have been well in line. But instead, look. So the father divided his property between them. He divides it. Uh, That word for property is by own. You can forget that. It's the word we get life. He literally is splitting up his life. This boy's demand came at a great cost to his dad. It goes on to say, not long after that, the the kid didn't waste any time. The younger son got together all that he had. Commentators say that the word there, the Greek word, is he liquidated it all. Now he's got cash to burn. He set off for a distant country. He got as as far away as he could. (laughs) And there he squandered his wealth and wild living. He's having a blast. He's the life of the party. Put in parentheses, sin is fun. For a season. 
It starts to be obvious to the crowd listening in. Can you feel it? It starts to be obvious. He's got sinners and tax collectors. He's got church people. It starts to be obvious who this is referring to. Jesus is telling a story with a point, and it starts to be obvious who he's referring to. There were plenty of illustrations in the crowd. Plenty of illustrations of wild living. Plenty of illustrations of people who'd squandered their life. Jesus goes on, he says, after this boy had spent everything, there was a severe famine in, in the country and he began to be in need. He lived life at full throttle, he spent it all, and then the unexpected happened, there's a famine. And his wild living all of a sudden led him, verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, a Gentile, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. This Jewish boy feeding pigs. Don't forget who's in the crowd. He hired himself out to a Gentile. Don't forget who's in the crowd. People who hired themselves out to the Roman government to collect taxes. People who hired themselves out to men to have sex in order to make a living. Don't forget, Jesus is making some very... He's connecting some dots. There's a picture of desperation. Verse 16, he got so desperate, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat. He became so empty that he became jealous of the pigs and no one would help him. What a journey this young boy's on. He wanted to live life far away from his father. He, wanted, he, wanted, he turned his back on his dad. He wanted freedom from his father so that he could experience fun, so that he could be free. And for a moment, uh, that's what he experienced. He was everybody else's daddy, right? He was in charge and he was paying the bill and he was, until all of a sudden it ran out. And when the money ran out, he ran out of happiness. And when the famine hit, it exposed his emptiness. And now the son of the prominent man is sitting with the pigs, wishing he were the pigs. Some in the audience could relate. Their lives were illustrative of this. Many of you can relate. You can relate. Uh, metaphorically, the, the, the dirt of the decisions of your life stick to you. Right? The, the, the stench of some of the choices you've made, they just follow you. You feel like I've squandered my life I lived it up and now I'm empty. Well, look at what happens. When he came to his senses, he begins to reflect and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. So now he makes a plan. I'll set out and go back to my father. And then he prepares a speech. You ever done that? Like, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> you prepare a speech. Like you come in late for curfew, like, all right, what am I going to say to dad, right? He prepares a speech. He says, I, I, I'll go back to him, to my father, and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He said, I'm, I, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. I'm, I'm willing to be a hired servant. And he begins rehearsing this and he begins the long trek home because he begins thinking, I wonder what it will be like 
to have this reunion with my father that I looked at and said, Dad, I wish you were dead, give me my stuff. I wonder what that father's gonna think of me. I wonder how that father is gonna receive me. I wonder if I'll walk back into town and they'll stone me, which would have been an appropriate cultural response for them. Look what happens. Jesus telling this story. But while he was a long way off, he was just a blip on the horizon. His father saw him. Do you get the sense the father is waiting for him? I do. While he was a blip on the horizon, his father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion for him. And he ran. That word for ran is an all-out sprint to a son. It's hard. When Jesus would have said this, everybody would have been like, what? It would have been unheard of, almost scandalous for a man of any kind of position or dignity to run, let alone to bare his legs. He would have had to hike up his robe to run. It would have been unheard of. Never did a superior run to an inferior, always the other way. This dad is doing what's out of the norm. And everybody watching would have been like, that boy needs to take the walk of shame. And instead, the father takes a run of love. Like Jesus tells the story and everything happens opposite of what they expect. And when he gets to the boy, look what it says. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. Literally, the word there is he falls on his neck. It's not a half-hearted hug. He's embracing him. And the word here for kiss is he repeatedly and fervently is kissing this kid with the smell of pigs still on him, with the mud of the pig pen still sticking to him. The dad is kissing him. One author said as he embraced him, one commentator said it could have been the father shielding him and protecting him from the potential stones of the people in the town. It's interesting. A startled son, then he had a speech ready. He didn't want to waste his speech. So he starts his speech. The son says to his dad, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer to be called your son. And he gets halfway done with the speech. He's halfway through the speech and the father interrupts him as though to say, that's good enough. I don't want to hear about your plan to repay me. I don't want to hear about your plan to work off the debt. It's not necessary. I'm going to absorb the debt. But instead, the dad interrupts him and says, but the father then looks at the servants and says, quick, don't wait right now. Bring the best robe. The Greek word for this is the robe for the most important people at the most important occasion and put it on my Son, my son, covered in pig poop, I want you to put the most important robe on him. I want you to cover him. And he says, put a ring on his finger. You mean the family ring? Yeah, the family ring. The one that signified full rights as a son, the authority as a son. It had been equivalent to giving him the family credit card. Then he says this, and sandals on his feet. No son of mine is going to walk around barefoot. You get the sense that dad's pulling out all the stops. Bring the fattened calf, the one that's corn-fed. We've been waiting for a big celebration. Bring that one and kill it 
Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. This is not just another day on the family farm. The family farm goes from the normal chores of the day to a place where parties breaking out and people are celebrating. And the dirge of a funeral and the lost son is long gone and now there's dancing and there's music and there's laughing and there's feasting. What's the point? What's the point? Jesus is everlasting Father, and as he stands between these two audiences, he wants them to know something, that if you and I will allow the truth of the story to get down into us, it has the potential to turn inside out, upside down, our picture of Jesus. Some of us need that today. We have a picture of an angry God, a disengaged God, a God who's waiting for us to jump through the hoops, God, a God who's moved on from you, God, a God whose arms are crossed looking down his nose at you kind of God. And Jesus gives us this picture of God. He's the eternal, everlasting Father. In Jesus, I want you to write this down. In Jesus, I see the extravagant grace of a welcoming Father. Jesus is the everlasting Father, and the story is a picture of the heart of the Father for sure. It is so obvious who's who in the story, that we have older brother, we're going to get to him in a minute, Pharisees and the church people, but we have the younger brother, those who've squandered their life in wild living. But in between, we have this Father, and there stands Jesus between these two audiences, the prostitutes and the tax collectors sitting there knowing exactly who is who in the story. And he was making it clear that the reason he ate with them is that he is the everlasting father who welcomes lost ones home. Listen to me, and he still does that today. I don't even know who I'm talking to today, but I'm talking to you. He still does that today. Some of you know exactly what I mean. And you need to know this, that Jesus, I want you to write this down. Jesus is the everlasting Father who patiently waits for me to come to my senses, just like the Father in the story. He's patiently waiting for some of us to come to our senses. Do you know something? It's only when I get to the end of me that I begin to come to my senses. <laughs> and, and, and the Father was patiently waiting. Today, Jesus is the everlasting Father who's patiently waiting for some of us to be real about where we're at, to be real about the mess that our lives are in, to admit that we've been living just like God doesn't exist, to be honest about what we've done, to stop defending, stop justifying, to quit trying to protect our image. Jesus is the everlasting Father just patiently waiting for us to come to our senses. But it tells me something else about Jesus, that he's the everlasting Father who lovingly runs to meet me where I am. Some of us today are a long way off. Some of us remember the last conversation we had with God and we said, I'm just gonna, it's not working for me, I'm gonna try my own thing. And we're worried about how God will feel if we came back. And the story makes it clear that he sees us. He loves us. He's looking for you today. He's filled with compassion. Some of us have a speech prepared like the boy in the story. God, I'm sorry, I've sinned. I'm not worthy to receive anything from you. I'll do whatever it takes. And he interrupts us and he says, that's enough. 
Don't tell me what you're going to do to repay. Don't tell me what you're going to do to work your way out of it because Jesus is the everlasting Father. And he doesn't just lovingly run to meet me, but Jesus is the everlasting Father who is eager to absorb my debt and cover my shame. That's the story. Some of us, the stink of our sin is everywhere. The poop of our past, the dirt of our decisions. Jesus is there as an everlasting father, ready and eager to cover our shame with his righteousness. That's why he died. The moment I say yes to Jesus, he covers us with his righteousness. When he does that, he places the ring on our finger, so to speak. He's the everlasting father who gives us the full rights of son. I am his son. It's immediate. I have immediate and constant access to God. I have the authority to carry on the family business. I am who Jesus says I am. I'm not a failure, but I am a child of the victorious one. I'm not trash, but I am a treasure of the Father. Wearing the ring of the Son, I'm wearing the sandals of a son. I can live as a son. I don't have to live to become a son. This is outrageous, right? He is the everlasting Father. I love this picture of God. Some of us need this picture of Jesus today, running to meet us right where we're at, interrupting us, paying the whole debt, covering our shame, giving us the full rights of son. And then if I read the story right, he's the everlasting father who celebrates over me. Jesus is the everlasting father who celebrates over me. I love what it says in Luke 15, 10. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I don't know what your picture of God is today, but he loves to throw a party. He's the everlasting father. And in this story, it became evident as these people had squandered their life, these people who were outcasts, the the, the moral outsiders, they were far away that Jesus was saying this, that he is the everlasting father with extravagant grace waiting to welcome them home. The same invitation is for you today. But there was this other group of people listening to the story, wasn't there? And that's why Jesus wasn't done. Though it says, meanwhile, back at the farm, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music, and he heard the dancing. I mean, they must have had a party, right? I can understand you can hear music, but if you can hear dancing, they're celebrating. You see what I'm saying? So he called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Look at the brother's response. The brother became angry and refused to go in. All of a sudden, he's lost. I don't know how your Bible has this part of the Bible. You might have a caption on it. Some of your Bibles have, over top of this part of the Bible, prodigal son story. Some of your Bibles have lost son. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong. I would... They'll cross that out and I say, this is actually not the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. This is the story of two lost sons and one prodigal dad. Honestly, this is the story of two lost sons. The younger son lost in the pig pen, 
but the older son is lost in the field. The younger son is lost in self-indulgence, living it up, but the older son, we're going to find out, is lost in self-righteousness. The younger son it, it looks at, at, at the father and says, you don't own me. The, 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 the older son says, he looks at the father and he says, you owe me because of what I've done. You see, both boys are lost. That misses, a lot of people miss that when they read this story. I love the way Tim Keller says this in this quote from his book, which I recommend for your reading, Prodigal God. He says, neither son loved the father for himself. They were both using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. The younger son was lost in his rebellion is what Jesus is trying to make a point. The older son, this group over here, they were lost in their religion. This group lost in rebellion, this group lost in religion. This group lost in the party scene, this group lost in Sunday school. Some of us are not lost in the pig pen. But if we're honest, if we're honest, we're lost in the field. Some of you watching this, you're lost in the field. You're like, you're, you're, you're older brother lost. Like, how do I know I'm older brother lost? Well, let me give you five questions to ask. Maybe the first question that I need to ask is this. I need to ask, am I lost in my obligation? Am I lost in my obligation? I think it's interesting when you see the end of the story, how the older brother responds to the father. If you jump ahead to verse 28, 29 of Luke 15, he says, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf. You see in the older brother this, this sense of obligation. And i got to ask myself, am, am I lost in obligation like this older brother? Where my relationship with God is more about my duty than delight. Where I measure my relationship with Jesus based on my activity, not my intimacy. That's interesting, isn't it? I might be older brother lost. Maybe I need to ask myself, am I lost in, in arrogance? In my arrogance. Uh, what does it mean to be lost in my arrogance? Well, you see what the older brother did there. He began to talk about, man, I've not done anything, anything wrong, and I'm doing everything right. <laughs> when I'm lost in my arrogance, what happens is this. I begin to overinflate my accomplishments and underestimate my shortcomings. I begin to look at life like through a pair of binoculars. You know what I'm talking about? Like binoculars, there's one side that's big, one side that's little. You look through this way and the big end, and it makes everything big. But you turn it around and you look through it, it makes everything little. And that's the way I begin to look at my life. I begin to look at my shortcomings and minimize them. 
But I begin to look at my accomplishments and I flip the binoculars and I amplify them. They're bigger than life. But when it comes to other people, you know what I do? I flip the binoculars. And it becomes very easy for me to amplify my accomplishments and minimize other people's. And it becomes very easy for me to minimize my shortcomings and to amplify the shortcomings of others. And I might be lost. I might be older brother lost. Or maybe I gotta ask myself, am I lost in my entitlement? Here's what I mean by that. I gotta ask myself, am I more enamored with what God gives me than I am with God? I've served God, worked in the church, I've done all this stuff for God, and now God owes me. <laughs> you see, that's why some people get disappointed with God. Because they feel like, I've put in my time, I've worked hard, and now some bad things have come my way. And, and, and I feel entitled, and God, just like the older brother, you owe me, just like the older brother in the story. All these years I've worked for you, and you... Maybe the question is this, am I lost in my judgmentalism? This is when I stop identifying with others and start isolating from the lost. Do you see what the older brother does here? He doesn't even call the younger brother his brother. He calls him this son of yours. You see, all of a sudden when I stop identifying with sinners and I start talking about those people who do those things, I might be lost like an older brother. Now, how about this one, fifth one, just real quick. Am I lost in my unforgiveness? Uh, here's the question here. Do I choose the feast of resentment over the celebration of repentance? Uh, here's a quote by a theologian that I thought was worth putting up here. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. That's a weird way to start. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last twosome morsel both the pain you're given and the pain you're giving back in many ways is a great feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. If, if we're honest, some of us allowing our wounds to eat us away from the inside out. We've become critical, cynical, callous, refuse to forgive. Somehow we think that by holding on to our hurts, we're actually going to win or we're going to have satisfaction. And what happens is we're eating away from the inside. Maybe, maybe if I'm lost in my unforgiveness, I'm older brother lost. There's no joy and there's no celebration with those who celebrate. Do you see what the father does? Verse 31. My son, my son, the father said, you're always with me and I, everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Listen close. This is how we end. Jesus is the everlasting father and the God who waited on the porch for the younger brother went out from the celebration to beg the older brother to enter the celebration. The one who hiked up his robe and ran after the younger brother and buried his head in his chest, that God is the God who goes out to the older brother, puts his arm around him and is inviting him to the same party.
Jesus is the everlasting Father. And maybe you, like Ahaz, have kind of turned your back and you're looking for somebody else to solve your problems, somebody else to bring satisfaction. Maybe like the younger brother, maybe like the older brother. And Jesus is the picture of the everlasting Father who with extravagant grace is welcoming you home. So Father, I pray for those listening. God, I pray some are a long way off. Some are, 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 are so far off and they wonder how you're going to receive them. I pray this picture of Jesus would be the invitation, the open door to run back into the arms of the everlasting Father, Jesus. God, some of us listening to this are older brother lost. And I pray that you would help us to come to our senses, to realize that we are just as lost, but that you are just as gracious to us and that we would run into the arms of Jesus, everlasting Father. I thank you for this beautiful picture. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.